Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. I want to remind you to make sure to visit Animals Today on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, and go to animalstodayradio.com. We're going to begin today speaking about turtles and tortoises with a good friend of the show, Susan Tellum, co-founder of American Tortoise Rescue. Welcome, Susan. Good morning, or good afternoon, I guess it is now. (laughs) How are you? I'm just great, and coming up soon is the annual celebration of World Turtle Day. But before we get to that, let's talk about the recent bust in L.A.'s Chinatown, where 70 tiny turtles were rescued and confiscated. Susan, what happened there? As you probably know, the the little baby turtles are still being sold illegally throughout the United States. Uh, Federal law passed in 1974 restricted the sale of any turtle under four inches in length. And so uh, that that law is is barely enforced. So these baby turtles keep coming in largely from Mexico and also from the south, and they are um, trafficked in areas with high visitors or high traffic, um, lots of people. In this particular case, these babies are being sold illegally uh, in Los Angeles behind the counter. So the animal uh, services, LA Animal Services, went in in plain clothes and checked with all the different stores asking if they had baby turtles as uh, proposing as a customer. Uh-huh. Once they found out which stores were selling them illegally, they went back in a week later in uniform and they cited and confiscated all the baby turtles that uh, was about five different stores that were selling them in just this one block area. Normally, unfortunately, even though we have been asking Fish and Game for 20 years to stop the importation of red-eared sliders into California because they're not native and they basically are destroying the California pond turtle. The importation continues, but the weird thing is that they will euthanize these babies mm. even though it's it's everybody's fault they're still coming in. So in order to prevent euthanasia, we volunteered to take this particular number of 70 babies. And so they are now in our what we call our turtle hospital, and they're all happy and healthy and getting sun and food. And before, they were pretty much in, in a very poor care, dirty water, and so on. What do you think motivated the Los Angeles Animal Services to pursue this at this time? You said earlier that there wasn't a lot of interest in this. Well, if you clamor loud enough, in this particular case, there is uh, Melia Kaplan, who's with Voice for the Animals Foundation. Uh-huh. She normally rescues cats. Uh, and in this particular case saw that there were people uh, selling some turtles and she uh, contacted me and said, you know, what can we do about it? If they go to animal services, they'll be euthanized, so would you be willing to take them if they confiscate them? And I said, absolutely, let's make that happen. So it's, you know, animal people getting together and helping to stop the cruelty. By the way, how old is a four-inch turtle? pretty old, actually. The interesting thing is I already had five babies that I have had for two years, and they are about the size of, uh, they're, they're probably about two inches, maybe a little bit under. So you can see how, how slowly they grow. Mm. So in order to grow a nice size turtle that's legal, you're probably looking at about four or five years. Wow. Now you are looking for volunteers to take these turtles and let them grow, but they're really not great pets, especially for kids. Uh, Tell us about that. 
doing, in fact, right before the call, I just gave uh, four of the babies to two lovely people who are going to foster them. They can look at at least two years or four years of fostering before they're large enough to go into a private pond. That's what we're looking for, people in the Los Angeles area, because we don't ship, to volunteer to take them and foster them until they're big enough to be rehomed into a pond. We don't allow our turtles to go to tanks. Um, tanks are, you know, it's like you and me living in a bathtub for the rest of our lives. Mm. So just a very unpleasant experience for a wild animal. And talk a little bit about the risks of salmonella, particularly if uh, children are well, handling this them. Well, law that was passed in 1974 was passed because children were dying from salmonella from handling these oh. little tiny pet turtles. Not only were they handling them, but kids put things in their mouth, and these are sort of bite-sized. That's what made the law happen was all these kids getting sick and dying. So, And we still lose children. In fact, I just looked at some stats recently, and, and uh, uh, an infant died of salmonella from turtle. Now, the infant obviously didn't handle the turtle, but the parents handled the turtle and then contaminated the child. Also, there was a a recent case in Los Angeles of a nine-month-old baby getting meningitis from a family turtle. So we do not adopt to homes with children under 12. Mm. They're just not old enough to understand how to take proper care and wash their hands. Now, moving to World Turtle Day, this is a day that your group established. What's World Turtle Day? Well, we call it a celebration. Yeah. We started it 17 years ago to honor turtles around the world and also to help educate people that they are in pretty much danger in many countries. They're either being eaten out of existence or sold into the pet trade. And so it was our way of helping to establish a special day for turtles. And we got the word out, and over the years we've gotten photos from countries like Borneo and Pakistan and uh, the U.K. and Australia, and people are now celebrating it all over the globe. And, in fact, yesterday I got an email from South Africa, and they want to do some special celebrations for World Turtle Day. I'm so pleased that people are actually getting in the spirit and doing special events and having fun with it, but also at the same time teaching, you know, the zoos and aquariums are teaching their their visitors about how to take better care of turtles. Congratulations on its international growth. Susan, do you have a facility or have you grown into a full-time education and public relations enterprise? When we started, we started with a very small area, and then we specifically moved to where we are now um, 20 years ago, which is an acre and a half in Malibu, um, which we have the sanctuary on the property. And the turtles that are here are mostly special needs turtles. They're ones that came in from abuse or, for example, one of the large sulcata tortoises was in an apartment in Chicago and was being fed rice cakes. And that's a terrible environment for a tortoise and terrible food for a tortoise that grows to be 200 pounds. So most of the animals that are in the sanctuary now are, uh, there are about 100 permanent residents that have had some sort of bad experience. We used to do, we've we've rehomed about 4,000 to new homes all around the United States and, and Canada. But 
it's very time-consuming, and that was in the days when there weren't very many rescues. Now there are many, many turtle and tortoise rescues. In fact, there's a link to them on, on our website. And so now that we have so many good people helping out, because of our expertise here, my husband's a photographer and a video guy, and so, and, I, and I'm a writer, so we, we use those, that expertise to help do a broader sweep of education and going after people and, and organizations that mistreat turtles and tortoises and bringing that to the public's attention. So we, we, while we will take in special cases, in fact, I just took one yesterday, and special needs turtles, we pretty much are um, giving the adoption opportunities to our friends um, around the country. Susan, what is the website where people can uh, learn more about your work and looking after these creatures? It's pretty simple. It's tortoise.com, T-O-R-T-O-I-S-E. And on the website, there are links to rescues, but there's also a, um, an opportunity to email me if you have any questions. Uh, there's a contact page, and, and, and I think most important, there's a donation page, which we can always use more donations. Turtles and tortoises come way behind warm and fuzzy little animals like cats and dogs. And I'll just remind listeners that your organization is 100% nonprofit. You uh, indicated that you and your husband have never taken a salary. So, so even though you've got the .com address, you are a registered nonprofit. That is true. Unfortunately, another turtle and rescue <laughs> beat us to the .org about six months before, back in 1996. Um, so we have the .com, but we are 100% volunteer. Nobody takes any salary. Right. Susan Tellum, American Tortoise Rescue, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for the opportunity, and have a turtle day. So, Lori, here's a little update I think you'd be interested in. This is a legal ruling that has been winding through the Missouri courts. This was brought on after a 2010 report issued by the Humane Society of the United States, where they named the dirty dozen of the worst puppy mills in Missouri. You know, that's the puppy mill, well, one of the puppy mill capitals. Well, the owner of one of these puppy mills, Mary Ann Smith, she was not happy about being part of the Dirty Dozen. She sued for defamation, false light, and invasion of privacy, with the suit being both against the Humane Society and Missourians for the protection of dogs. The lower court dismissed her claims. She appealed and ended up fighting, fighting until it reached the state Supreme Court. Of note, she didn't point out any factual errors. She just said that the language using to describe her facility like atrocious and unconscionable and flagrant, that these statements were defamatory, put her in a false light and invaded her privacy. Well, the Supreme Court finally did rule and she lost. The Humane Society and the Missourians for the Protection of Dogs won. The court ruled that these statements were opinion and therefore protected as free speech. How about that? The court added that to be liable under state defamation law, opinion statements about matters of public concern must be provable as false. And that was not met in this standard. Boy, it takes a long time for this to get through the courts, doesn't it? That's a 2010 report. But to me, it's clear that her facility is atrocious and unconscionable. Yeah. Because all puppy mills are. Stick around. More with animals today after the break.
For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. The third Friday in May is Endangered Species Day. So I thought I would give you a list I found of the 10 most endangered animals. This list is off the website called All About Wildlife. And I should mention that the list is prefaced by mentioning how hard it is to come up with a top 10 list. For every critically endangered creature you select, you must leave out hundreds of other animals that are in just as much jeopardy. They also say that they did not include the giant panda on their list, although the giant panda is indeed endangered. It's gotten plenty of attention from conservationists and the public alike. So this is their list of the top 10 most endangered animals. Oh, this makes me sad. It's so sad. Go ahead. The vaquita. Yes. We've spoken about the vaquita before, Peter. They're cute little porpoises. Not many left. Right. They are the world's smallest and rarest marine mammal. The Amur leopard, the world's rarest cat, only 40 left in Mm. Russia's Far East. Javan rhinoceros, no more than 60 of these swamp-dwelling Asian rhinos exist. The next species from Madagascar, the northern sportive lemur. The western lowland gorilla. Yeah. Disease and illegal hunting are wiping out this gentle giant. The Sheola, an Asian unicorn. The leatherback sea turtle. The tiger, the world's biggest cat, is almost gone. Except for in the United States where everyone has a pet tiger. That's right. Exactly. Chinese giant salamander. Humans are eating the world's largest amphibian into extinction. Great. And finally... Ivory-billed woodpecker, Mm. a bird so rare it may no longer even exist. Quite sad. Well, I guess. Thank you, Lori. So, Lori, the cloning of dogs is in the news. Did you hear about about this? Cloning of dogs, yes. Yes, that's becoming popular. Apparently, there's a facility in South Korea. They've done 600 dogs so far. Tell me how it works. You know, that's a good question because... You know, you would think the term cloning is sort of benign and it wouldn't really be hard to do. You could maybe scrape some cells and get them to grow in a dish and somehow get a replica of your beloved pet, right? Right. That would be my first thought, that it wouldn't be so invasive. But alas, that's not the case. Not only not invasive, but costing the lives of many, many, many other dogs to get that one cloned dog, correct? Okay, so this is how that works. First of all, you need to get some eggs, and the eggs from a dog, well, you've got to get a dog who's got these eggs. So it's unclear where these dogs come from that supply their eggs, but you've got to get at their ovaries, and that's done through an open surgery. So they anesthetize the dog, open up the abdomen, get the ovaries and sort of harvest these eggs. And then where these dogs come from and where they go to is undisclosed so far. 
Okay, and then they utilized these eggs. They go in there with micropipette and take out the contents. So you've got like an empty, called a blank egg. And then uh, also, now this is done like in a little dish. Then you've got a skin cell from an animal that you want to clone. And that is placed into the egg. Okay, so then you've got your little embryo. Right. Right. And then, like Frankenstein, they zap it with a little electricity to start it developing. Developing. Okay. And then that gets implanted into another dog, the the host mother dog. The surrogate dog. Right. Okay. Who, of course, volunteers for this and gets very highly compensated for this. And this embryo is then implanted into this surrogate. And then 61 days later, you get your puppy or puppies or nothing. Frequently they fail. Uh, but look what happened. Look at the collateral damage. Well, besides the fact that it's about $100,000 per attempt and they frequently fail and the puppies that are produced are frequently sick and don't have normal, happy puppy and adult lives, there's no indication where either of these uh, sets of dogs come from and where they go. So it takes many surrogate dogs and many egg donor dogs. Right. Many attempts to produce one clone dog. They've done about 600 so far, and there's a big demand for it, according to the company. So what do you think about this? It's horrible. Well, first of all, yeah, look who wants it done. People who are grieving, they've lost a beloved pet, and they want to recreate that animal. And that is sort of ridiculous. And, okay, I feel bad for the people who get, get real, right? And the dog that's produced is not a duplicate of the, your pet. I mean, the genes may be the same, but it doesn't equal the same exact dog. The dog's going to have his own or her own personality. And then there's a, you know, the life experience changes how they are. And it's just not the same. It's never the same. Do you remember Dolly the sheep? Yes. So Dolly, Dolly was the first mammal cloned from a somatic cell right? Cloned from just a regular cell. They happen to use a mammary cell, which is, I think, why they called her Dolly, because of the mammary-Dolly Parton connection. But uh, Dolly lived almost seven years. She was, and now she's stuffed. She's taxidermied, and she was uh, from Scotland. And uh, she sort of was used to prove that that you could do this. And subsequently, many other animals um, have been cloned, And there's a growing science about this, but in the pet universe, not so good. How about the human universe? Well, that's going to be interesting also. I bet you there are many books about this already. What if uh, you could clone with no collateral damage? Just uh, get a skin cell and zap it, and uh, it grows in a little Petri dish. What do you think about just creating a clone without any other trouble? Every animal, whether human or non-human, is an individual. Although I just love my dogs and my cats that I've had in the past to pieces, I would not want to clone them. Yes. Would you? No, of course not. I'm a traditionalist. Peter, do you know if South Korea is the only area doing this? Yeah, only South Korea so far. It wouldn't surprise me if these start popping up everywhere. You know, with the money involved, it's going to happen. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. Your 
Animals Today fun facts for the day are about koalas. When early European settlers first encountered koalas in Australia, they thought the tree-climbing animals were bears or monkeys. Even today, people still incorrectly refer to koalas as koala bears. In fact, koalas, like kangaroos, are actually marsupials, which are also known as pouched mammals because the adult females have a marsupium, or pouch, where their young stay until fully developed. Koalas are only found in Australia, and they are one of that country's iconic symbols. Koalas have special physical characteristics that complement their tree-dwelling lifestyle, including their two opposable digits to grip branches and depict the tasty eucalyptus leaves, their main form of nourishment. And these are your Animals Today fun facts for the day. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for joining us on Animals Today. Each week, we explore the wide variety of new and important issues concerning the welfare and rights of animals, how people treat them, and where they fit in society. From whale protectors risking their own lives on the open seas, to lawmakers fighting to pass legislation to assist animals, to kids volunteering at their local shelter, Animals Today provides timely and in-depth analysis and interviews with experts and advocates from around the world. To listen, join us every week on this station, listen on iTunes, or go to animalstodayradio.com, where you can access and listen to all the prior shows. And like us on Facebook and share your views. Much of our financial support comes from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIanimals.org. So check them out. This is Dr. Lori, and thanks for listening. Welcome back. I'm pleased to welcome back to the show Matt Ellerbeck, also known as the Salamander Man. Matt's website is SaveTheSalamanders.com. Hi, Matt. Hi. How are you today? Very well. Matt, you have been on Animals Today a number of times and always bringing good information. And today I wanted to speak with you about being an educator because I know a big part of your work is live education. Matt, what groups are you speaking to? Um, well, I speak to a whole wide array of groups, and, and that's always been really important to me, because I think when talking about, you know, salamander conservation and just an appreciation for animals and nature as a whole, you really want that message to be appealing to all ages and all walks of life. So I've really kind of made it my objective to try to bring that message to as many people as possible. So I've talked to everything from... You know, like yesterday I did a school. Here's a perfect example. And I did the uh, kindergarten and grade one class all the way up to the, you know, seven and eight class, the older students. And then the day before that, or a few days before that, sorry, I was doing a high school, so much older students. And then at the end of the month, I'm going to be doing a naturalist group, which is, you know, going to be people a little bit older than myself. So it, it just in a week's time, you know, it's a very wide array of ages and and kind of different demographics of people. And I think that's wonderful. I really want everyone to have um, an appreciation for these animals and, and the cause as a whole. So I think that's a really important thing. Let's take a step back. What is your background in animals and why the focus on salamanders? Well, when I was a kid, I grew up kind of in the city, and then I would, you know, so it was pretty urbanized, but I was lucky that I spent my summers out with my grandparents in nature, so I was actually out 
seeing salamanders and other animals as a, as a little kid. And that's where that kind of um, interest began with those animals. And then when I got older, and I started to realize some of the conservation concerns that these animals are facing, but kind of saw that there was really a lack of, you know, organizations or groups or even individual conservationists dedicated to the recovery of salamanders, that really inspired me to want to become their advocate and their conservationist. So uh, how I kind of got started after that was I approached the local conservation authority and I worked with them to develop my outreach education project. And then I got licensed with natural resources so I could work with some of these protected species. And, you know, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. This will be my sixth year, um, going into my sixth year with my Save the Salamanders project. And, you know, every year it gets a little bit bigger. Um, I'm actually just in the midst of, you know, applying for another research permit so I can be doing some surveying. So when I'm not doing education stuff, I'm out in the field. I was actually just at a site. Um, just before I spoke with you and I and saw some salamanders and, you know, collecting data. And then when I'm not doing that, as you said, you know, I'm, I'm usually in a classroom setting, uh, uh, teaching. So, it, you know, it, it definitely is the focal point in my life. And um, so it, it really just started as a passion that I had. And then that evolved into wanting to become active and involved with that passion and doing something that will really contribute to the betterment of these animals. Matt, what challenges or obstacles are there in getting in front of appropriate audiences? I think one of the challenges is just this kind of stigma around salamanders being an amphibian. Reptiles and amphibians in general, a lot of people are afraid of them and, you know, view them as slimy or ugly or misunderstood. So right there, they can put up roadblocks. As I approach a school or an organization and, you know, try to work with them to set an event up so I can eventually, you know, educate the students or, or the campers or whatever. If they kind of have those stigmas, they might not understand or see the value in that and, you know, trying to teach people to appreciate and conserve these things. Like the message, it kind of goes above their head, right? They, yeah. the, the notion that, you know, someone want to protect something that they would deem as, you know, kind of useless and ugly, so forth and so on, um, that can put up roadblocks a lot. And it's kind of an uphill battle, you know. It's not like trying to champion or advocate for, you know, a charismatic mammal or something that's cute and cuddly, which everyone can kind of uh, get behind or see the appeal in. So right there... You know, I kind of have to sell it to these people, the idea that, you know, this is worthwhile and this is important, um, and then try to hopefully get them to then allow me to utilize those avenues to bring the message to, you know, students and, and camp participants and things like that. So that in itself is a challenge. So how I have to kind of deal with that is when I go to these people is the first step is to make them really understand mm -hmm. What sort of props or educational aids might you bring along when you when you speak? Well, I have some captive bred salamanders, okay. so ones that haven't been taken from the wild or anything like that. And I bring those along with me um, when I do outreach education so people can see the animals up close. One thing that salamanders have kind of going against them is most people don't see them in the wild. They're very secretive. So how can you want to protect something that you don't ever see or really know anything about? So yesterday, when I went into the school, I brought some salamanders with me, and the kids were all, oh, they're so cute. Oh, they're so cool. Oh, that's amazing. You know, I've never seen that before. So when they can see these living, breathing creatures up close 
and, and then can kind of see that these little beings are gentle and actually have really nice colors and patterns and they can start to empathize with them and then that really fuels them their desire to want to protect them when they kind of meet these little ambassadors these captive mm-hmm. bred salamanders yeah. then they think oh i really want to help make sure the ones that in the wild stay there they stay in healthy happy populations yeah. they, they continue to survive so i think meeting the animals and seeing them up close really um you know that really makes an impact on children and and adults as well so i think that's my biggest kind of tool that I bring with me. And then the second thing is just to be enthusiastic, you know, share that passion. If I was going to see a presentation on something and the individual seemed kind of monotone and and didn't care, you know, why would I, I can't expect people to care about something if I don't seem like I care about it myself. So it's really important to be, you know, very impassioned, which is not a hard thing for me to do because, you know, I love salamanders, so that's why I'm doing this. But those are my two kind of, my arsenal, you could say, when I'm educating. And it comes through here on the radio. Now, these salamanders, they're not good pets, right? No, I wouldn't call them pets. And, And I really emphasize that to the kids, you know, that when I bring them in, we don't pet them or play with them. We just observe them because even though they're bred in captivity, you know, they're not something that wants to be picked up and kind of played with. I I explained to them, they're my education animals. They're here um, for the greater good to hopefully contribute um, to the continuing survival of their kind of wild brethren, for lack of a better term. So um, that's really emphasized to children and students. And I also let them know, if you do see a salamander in the wild, please don't take them home and, and try to keep them as a pet. You know, Leave the wild ones in the wild. I explained to them, the ones that have been bred in captivity, that's their home. That's where they've always been. But the ones in the wild, that's their home. That's where they're happy, so that's where they belong. Right. So those points are, are really emphasized, and I, and I really do think that people get that and they understand that. You recently told Lori about two prior gratifying experiences related to your presentations and your work. Can you share them with us? Yeah. Um, one instance was there. I had kind of done some educational efforts up at a campground, and then the, the male lady who delivered up in that area had kind of expressed to my my mother, because she's up in that area, that um, she had seen a salamander on the road and actually stopped and moved it across so it wouldn't get hit. Yeah. And she said before she had kind of learned about, you know, the plight of salamanders through me, she was not the kind of person who liked animals. She said she always thought amphibians and reptiles were kind of ugly and gross and they creeped her out. But once she was made aware of the fact that these things are in trouble because a lot of salamanders are endangered, a lot of them need conservation, she took that knowledge and then did something active with it and helped that animal and saved its life by getting it off of a road where it would have been hit by a car. And usually salamanders on the road are females going to lay their eggs. So not only did she save that animal, but the next generation of salamanders as well because the eggs in her body would have been destroyed if she was run over. So by just doing a simple thing like that, she made a a great impact for that salamander and her babies as well. And that's just a, a perfect example of how a person's behaviors can change once they're educated. And one other example is I was doing a a presentation a few months ago at Queen's University, and a lady came up to me, and she said, I saw you 
about five years ago with my grandchildren, and um, they were very young then, and, and you know they're a little bit older now. And she said they have a great interest in nature and animals and the environment. She said I really credit that to you. She said when they came and saw you that you, they'd learned so much, and that really kind of inspired them, you know, to really become active and, and interested in those things. And and that was a great compliment because I mean that's the whole idea, right? To educate people and to get them impassioned about salamanders and nature and the environment. And so to hear that kind of corresponded back to me from this individual, um, you know, that, what more could I ask for? That means, you know, my I kind of mission accomplished, so to speak. Yeah. Matt Ellerbeck, the Salamander Man. The website is savethesalamanders.com. Uh, Matt, any final words for our listeners? Just uh, hopefully they'll visit the site and, and learn lots. And, and remember, what we do good for salamanders is good for all animals and, and nature as a whole. So all these things are connected. Thanks so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Stick around. More with Animals Today after the break. Today's Animals Today Minute is about the blue-footed boobies of the Galapagos, known for their bright aquamarine blue feet. Stealth diving into the Pacific and goofy mating dances, the blue-footed booby has called the western coast of South America and the Galapagos Islands home for centuries. This bird weighs just under four pounds, with an impressive average wingspan of five feet. The red-footed booby, their cousin, also resides in the Galapagos Islands. Spanish explorers gave these birds their unique Spanish name, Bobo, which translates in English as dummy. This name was given in part because the blue-footed booby shows no fear or intimidation towards humans. But why does a bird need bright blue webbed feet? These feet are employed like the feathers on a peacock to attract females. Interestingly enough, you can tell how healthy these birds are by looking at their feet. The bluer the feet, the healthier the bird. Less vividly colored feet usually indicates poor health. These birds can be seen migrating as far north as the Salton Sea, and the flight patterns move northwards every year. They live in a safe haven in the Galapagos Islands, but the North American population count is declining. The North American Water Bird Conservation Plan estimates about 90,000 birds in the Gulf of California. The blue-footed booby is not currently on any endangered or animal watch lists, but their slower breeding and declining population in North America are concerning. The blue-footed booby, along with all other species of the natural world, become increasingly dependent upon the actions of humans as the world is more industrialized and populated. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Are you ready to better your life and up your business game? Secret Knock has been hailed one of the top events for business leaders in 2017. Ranked number one by Inc.com and number two by Forbes.com. This two-day event has a limited number of seats, and they fill up fast. Hear real-life legends give their best advice. Also, make valuable business connections. And prepare for 2017 to be your best year yet. Visit secretknock.co to learn more and apply now. vaccines are needed for cats? What diseases do vaccines prevent and how effective are they? When, if ever, do booster vaccinations need to be done? Here to update us on current guidelines for feline vaccinations is Dr. Robert Reed, Medical Director of VCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage, California. Hey, Robert. 
Hi, Lori. Okay, so we've already spoken about dogs. Now would you please review the diseases we are concerned about in cats and the vaccinations recommended to prevent them? The main diseases we are concerned about in cats are, of course, rabies virus or rabies vaccine, um, feline leukemia virus, and the upper respiratory diseases, which are feline herpes virus or rhinotracheitis virus, uh, Khaleesi virus, and the feline parvovirus, which is called panleukopenia virus. The vaccine that's often referred to um, as feline distemper is actually the combination of the, the herpes virus, Khaleesi virus, and panleukopenia virus. We call it the FERCP vaccine. That's one of our core vaccines. In fact, the, the main vaccine that we try to get kittens uh, uh, immunized with. The leukemia vaccine, we generally only give to cats that are going to be in contact with other cats outside the house, usually outdoor cats or cats that socialize with cats that don't live in the household. The rabies vaccination in cats is not required by the state of California at this time, but it's recommended in cats that might have exposure to any other cats, to people or wildlife, which really includes virtually all cats. Um, and the the, uh, the duration of those vaccinations is up to interpretation and the frequency with which they're administered can vary between individual pets and individual veterinarians. Talk about the safety of the vaccines. What side effects or risks are there? Well, you know, the cats can have the same kind of, um, of risks that dogs have, that, meaning, you know, they can have allergic reactions, um, and they also have delayed reactions where they feel sick that night and the next day. But I have to say that cats are much less prone, though, to allergic reactions and are more likely to have vomiting reaction than swelling about the, the face, for example. But the, the reaction that we worry the most about in, in cats and the, the one that cat lovers tend to have the greatest concern about is the feline immune, uh, the um, injection site sar- sarcomas, which are tumors that develop as a result of stimulation under the skin by a vaccination. This is a condition that we used to see more frequently because of vaccines that contained adjuvants, which are uh, ingredients that are stimulated, that are intended to stimulate a reaction and to make the immune system respond more strongly. Fortunately, over the last few years, some of the manufacturers of vaccines have gotten um, wise to that and have developed some vaccines that are cat-specific that don't have adjuvants in them and are extremely less likely to cause that type of reaction. It's a devastating reaction, though, because it usually happens years later, um, and it can be life-threatening and sometimes fatal. So uh, you can imagine that it raises a lot of concern among cat owners. Wow, wow. In your practice, what misconceptions do your clients have about vaccinations in cats and the diseases they prevent? Well, I think the most people, the most common misconception about cats is actually that cats don't 
lead vaccinations, then I really don't believe that. I think that the, the vaccines that we use, the core vaccines, have a real purpose and really protect cats' lives, particularly the upper respiratory vaccines and panleukopenia virus. You know, the panleukopenia virus is one that it's probably the most serious disease of the three, but it's the one that has the longest immunity. The other two or upper respiratory diseases, uh, sometimes mouth diseases, and they, they affect the membranes of the mouth and the airways. And they can be, the duration of immunity can be much shorter and the symptoms can be lessened or prevented if the vaccines are kept up fairly regularly. Unfortunately, the regularity is not quite as clear as we would like it to be. We generally think of those as necessary at the same interval as puppies when cats are kittens, meaning they get them about every three weeks until they're about 16 to 20 weeks of age. And then annually. After that, afterward, some people might give them annually and some might uh, move to an every three-year dosing. And that's going to depend on the location, the, the level of risk, the ideas of the practitioner and the interests of the the pet owner as well. So that one, you know, was really open to conversation, and and I think that the decisions are not going to be the same for every pet. But it is very important to have that conversation because some form of vaccine protection, I think, is really important for cats for those vaccines. So another vaccine that we often use that we sometimes con consider a core vaccine for cats is the feline leukemia vaccine. Uh, but the recommendations for that are also not as clear as we would like. Uh, we tend to follow the guidelines of the Association, American Association of Feline Practitioners, which suggests that kittens should be immunized against leukemia because they're more vulnerable to contracting it and that the vaccine should be given as a, a two-booster uh, interval, a two-booster series as kittens and then annually thereafter as long as cats are being exposed to other cats through play groups or through being through outside activity. So that one, again, really depends on the lifestyle of the cat, uh, whether you want to give it or not. Perhaps the, the vaccine that elicits the most discussion in California for cats is the rabies vaccine because it is not required. And many people, of course, um, for valid reasons, want to minimize the amount of vaccine they give to their cats. Many people choose not to use it. I tend to favor rabies vaccine in cats as long as we use the cat-specific vaccine that's designed to provide uh, minimal risk and less reactivity, uh, especially in terms of uh, vaccine-related sarcomas. Um, I believe that the rabies vaccine is helpful in protecting cats against uh, potential exposures to rabies and the implications of uh, animal control intervention if there is a, a possible exposure um, to rabies. And cats are actually the most commonly affected domestic animal um, by rabies, at least in the U.S. Not that it happens frequently, um, but it probably happens more than people realize. Very helpful information. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.